0: Virtuous Man, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify.
1: Welcome to a special bonus episode of Season 2, where we share conversation and commentary with our friends at A Brother's Creed. Each of us will share a virtuous duo featuring two men of history who work together to accomplish something meaningful.
2: Welcome, everybody, to a collaboration between a Brothers Creed podcast and Virtuous Men podcast. Thank you guys for uh, getting together with us.
1: You bet. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're good we're, to be back.
2: We're excited about this. So our, our topic today, we're going to be talking about uh, virtuous duos or virtuous partners from history and from, uh, uh, from our studies and from our research, people that we uh, admire, people that have qualities that we are interested in becoming more more like and learning from. So each of us picked a a, a separate duo that we're going to be sharing uh, uh stories from today and uh it, it's going to be really good. I'm excited about it. Yeah, me too.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a good I think uh duo. When I thought about it, I'm like, well, we're doing duos and this is also a duo between our two podcasts, so it's a, it's a good fit.
3: And also both of our podcasts are partnerships. So Yeah. Uh, that's right. That's even better. That's you know? true.
1: That's very true. It felt very fitting. It's a, a duo <laughs> theme.
3: Exactly. Yeah. I had a quote that I wanted to share that was about duos. Uh, this is from R- uh, Reed Hoffman, who's actually the CEO and founder of LinkedIn. He said, no matter how brilliant your mind or strategy, if you play a solo game, you'll always lose out to a team. So I thought that was cool. Uh, just in the context of what we're going to share today is uh, sometimes going it alone is, is not the best way. And so you'll, if you're just, you know, no matter how smart you are or brilliant, you're going to lose out to a a quality team. And and both of our podcasts, Virtuous Men, Brothers Creed, uh, you know, we're, we're teams and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So super excited to do this with you guys. It's a little bit different than the style we normally do. Uh, you guys at Virtuous Men, this is kind of your, your MO. You guys always, uh, do these like really awesome monologues or or like kind of stories with music and sounds and stuff. We've done one of these before, uh, with our Halloween episode, uh, that uh, we did uh, really the first, um, this was only a few weeks after we started. Uh, and so this is really cool. It was, it was really fun editing the, these episodes.
2: And I was going to say, it made me, uh, that, that quote made me think of the quote, right? The, uh, dream teamwork makes the dream work. I've always, right. I've always liked that. Yeah. Quote. We're, we're, we're always stronger we'll, together
0: yeah. with yeah. our, uh, with our podcast. I've always found that Scott and I were, we're, we got the same goal, but we pr- approach things so differently. And, uh, I think that's that's what you need you know if you're if you're the same kind of thinkers it, it's often you know you just get in each other's way cuz you're both doing the same thing and you want your way but I think we both bring something different to the to the project which I really like that's true. I mean, we still fight and
1: argue, but still. Yeah, you we know. still do that. But <laughs> well, that's
2: part of partnership, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Just you know, just you just, uh, just admit that discussion. I'm right, and we'll go on and we'll move on.
2: Yeah, a heated discussion. That's what we call it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll, do, we'll do. We'll do it. Yeah, that'll be our next our next collaboration, talking
2: about that. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Well, uh, let's see. So we've got each one of us has prepared a ten minute uh, uh, kind of clip. Uh, uh, Jamie's thirteen minutes because Jamie's special. Uh, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah. we'll play, it, it'll be good though. His is, his is great though. Uh, and then we're going to play him and then we're just going to chat about him afterwards. And, uh, since we've each done actually some research on different, these different topics, it'd be interesting to just kind of, you know, blast that person with questions about interesting yeah. stuff.
0: So, uh, um, yeah, none of us have listened to the other persons yet. So it's, uh, yes. it's a treat. Yeah. It's a, it's a brand new, uh, Except- audio. Yeah, well, I mean, you guys have
1: all unveiled who you're doing, except for me. So yes. like, I'm full yeah, blown Mr. secret. I'm full blown mysterious here. So yes, <laughs> <laughs> so
3: <laughs> so we're, we're, I'm excited to hear all these. So let's uh, let's go ahead and dive in. Let's see. I'm first, and I will uh, just go ahead and start this clip. Here we go. The year is 1801. Napoleon Bonaparte, in his mission to rule the world, has recently reacquired the Louisiana Territory from Spain in a treaty. Thomas Jefferson, the President of the United States, seeing that Napoleon would likely need money in his war in Europe and wanting to seize the opportunity, made a deal to purchase the Louisiana Territory from France for $15 million. Before the deal was even finished being negotiated, he secretly petitioned members of Congress for funds to put together an expedition to explore America's newest frontier. This was a land of mystery and intrigue, President Jefferson had amassed a small library of maps and journals describing this mysterious frontier west of the Mississippi River. With legends of woolly mammoth herds, giant mountains of salt, a race of Welsh-speaking Indians, and giant ground sloths, it would surely take a courageous man to lead this expedition. The man he chose was none other than 29-year-old former soldier, frontiersman, and explorer Meriwether Lewis. Meriwether Lewis, realizing the magnitude of the task ahead, reached out to a former superior from his military days, William Clark. Clark was also a proven leader, frontiersman, and cartographer. In response to the letter from Lewis, Clark wrote, This is an undertaking fraught with many difficulties, dangers, and fatigues. But my friend, I do assure you that no man lives with whom I would prefer to undertake such a trip as yourself. With that, the famed Discovery Corps began its preparations for the journey. Co-commanders Lewis and Clark were charged by President Jefferson to explore the Wild West in the methods of enlightenment science, which is to observe, collect, document, and classify. These types of strategies were already in place for other explorers like Cook and Vancouver. The other key objectives were to establish diplomatic relations with the native tribes and to find a water passage across the continent. In preparation for this expedition, Lewis studied medicine, botany, astronomy, zoology, and scrutinized every map and journal he could get his hands on from fur trappers and others in the Missouri area. On May 14, 1804, 33-year-old William Clark and 29-year-old Meriwether Lewis and 43 other men set out together on the Missouri River on their quest. The adventure was afoot. Meriwether Lewis was born in Virginia in 1774, but spent his early childhood in Georgia. As a teen, he returned to Virginia to pursue his education, and in 1793, he graduated from college from Liberty Hall, which is now Washington and Lee University. After joining the state militia, he helped quell the Whiskey Rebellion, which was a Pennsylvania uprising by farmers against taxes, in 1794. While serving in the Army at 21, he was court-martialed for allegedly challenging a lieutenant to a duel during a drunken dispute. He was found guilty, but instead of being charged, he was simply transferred to a different rifle company to avoid further incidents. His new commanding officer was William Clark, the same man he would later invite to go on the Great Expedition with. Later at age 27, he became a personal secretary to longtime friend, President Thomas Jefferson. William Clark was born in August of 1770 and was four years older than Meriwether Lewis. Clark was born in Virginia. He grew up as the ninth of 10 children. His older five brothers all fought in the Revolutionary War and achieved different high-ranking positions. The family and their slaves finally made their home in Kentucky. Clark entered the military at age 19 and became friends with Lewis there. A year after meeting Lewis, Clark resigned from the military and managed his family's estate. He did this for around seven years before he got the call to accompany Lewis on the Great Expedition. As the Discovery Corps embarked on their expedition, the journey upstream on the Missouri River was difficult and exhausting. The heat, the bugs, and the river currents and snags they would face on the river itself made for a strenuous journey. Averaging about 15 miles a day, this leg of the journey was largely over water. The only casualty of the entire expedition would die on this leg of the journey. Sergeant Charles Floyd would die from a burst appendix. Charles was buried near modern-day Sioux City, Iowa. The team would meet with the Ottos and Missouri's tribes and gave peace medals as gifts for most chiefs of each tribe. By October, the party had reached the Mandan and Hidats village near modern-day Washburn, North Dakota. They built Fort Mandan, where they spent the winter. During the winter, both Lewis and Clark made copious notes in their journals, drew maps, learned of the geography that lay ahead of them from local Indian tribesmen in the area. They recruited a French interpreter named Toussaint Charbonneau, who was accompanied by his Shoshone wife, Sacagawea, and her newborn baby, Jean-Baptiste. In that spring of 1805, in April, they sent a boat back with many of their journals, maps, collections, samples of animals that they had found, and they set off on their journey. In June of 1805, the expedition party arrived at a fork in the river. Not knowing which waterway was the principal stream, they sent out reconnaissance parties up both forks. Although the evidence was not conclusive, the captains believed the South Fork to be the major course while everyone else favored the North. Lewis named the North Fork Maria's River and instructed the party to continue up the South Fork. This choice proved correct when the expedition arrived at Great Falls almost two weeks later. An 18 mile portage around the falls was made even more difficult by broken terrain, prickly pear cactus, hailstorms, and numerous grizzly bears. On July 4th, 1805, the party finished the portage and to celebrate Independence Day, consumed the last of their 120 gallons of alcohol and danced into the night. On August 17, 1805, they reached the end of the Missouri River, near the Rocky Mountains, and turned south up Jefferson River. Soon thereafter, they abandoned their boats and started a new leg of their journey to cross the Continental Divide. Lewis wrote in his journal, We were about to penetrate a country on which the foot of civilized man had never trodden. On the crossing of the Continental Divide, Clark lamented, quote, I have been wet and as cold in every part as I have ever was in my life. Indeed, I was at one time fearful my feet would freeze in the thin moccasins which I wore. They crossed the Continental Divide through the Lemhi Pass. and Then they purchased horses from the Shoshone, who were the people of Sacagawea. They then built boats and rode the Clearwater River in Idaho down to the Snake and then the Columbia Rivers, which led all the way out to the Pacific Ocean. They reached the Pacific Ocean on December 3rd, 1805. Braving the wet and windy elements of the Pacific Northwest, Clark wrote in his journal, quote, The great Western, for I cannot say Pacific Ocean, as I have not seen one pacific or peaceful day since my arrival in its vicinity. If ever there were two men who worked together as one, it was Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. While both men were quite different from each other, Clark was effervescent and quick to laugh, Lewis mercurial and moody. They had an understanding of each other's strengths and weaknesses that combined to provide leadership of the highest caliber. Even when they had disagreements, there was no rancor and always a great deal of support. Both considered the other their closest friend. The expedition returned home in September of 1806. The group had traveled nearly 8,000 miles in total. The expedition failed to. S- cite any of the long extinct creatures imagined by Thomas Jefferson and others, or find a waterway across the entire continent. But Lewis did categorize 178 previously unknown species of plants 122 new animals, including coyotes, mountain beavers, and grizzly bears. He also established diplomatic relations with several tribes. Lewis would go on to become governor of the Louisiana territory, but his mental health was not in a good space. At age 31, Lewis reflected in his journal, quote, I reflected that I had as yet done but little to further the happiness of the human race or to advance the information of the succeeding generation. Lewis shortly thereafter is believed to have committed suicide with a pistol in an inn around Great Falls. After the expedition ended, Clark traveled in 1807 to St. Louis to take up duties as a chief Indian agent for the territory of Upper Louisiana. For nearly 30 years, he ranked as a senior official in the West and reported to six presidents, from Jefferson to Von Buren. Clark ended up raising the son of Sacagawea after her passing and urged for fair treatment of Indian tribes. Clark was heartbroken when he heard of the death of his dear friend, and he named his firstborn son, Meriwether Lewis Clark. Four years after Lewis's death, Thomas Jefferson wrote, of courage undaunted, possessing a firmness and perseverance of purpose which nothing but impossibilities could divert from its direction. Honest, disinterested, liberal, of sound understanding and fidelity to truth, so scrupulous that whatever he should report would be as certain as if seen by ourselves. With all these qualifications, as if selected and implanted by nature in one body for this express purpose, I could have no hesitation in confiding this enterprise to him. Lewis and Clark both exemplified leadership through difficulties with a task that seemed overwhelming. Sometimes, when you're facing a daunting task like the one they faced, the best thing to have by your side is a trusted friend whose skills complement your own. They say if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. That certainly was the case for Lewis and Clark.
1: Bravo! Well done! Well done!
3: Very Thanks. much so. Yeah, that was an incredible story. I just was just loved researching those guys so much. I think one of the things that hit me the most was that uh, you know Lewis uh, committing suicide, uh, and and before that, how yeah. he lamented that he felt like he hadn't added any value to this to the world which we live in. And you, and you think about that, and he's like, well, he, this guy literally mapped out the entire, you know, co- the whole continent that we live on. He discovered all these species and all these animals and and he, and he made peace with all these Indian tribes. He did so much, and yet he still felt like uh, he was, you know, lesser than or had not achieved anything. And, you know, that's why I mentioned in there that, you know, I think that he must have had some type of, his mental space wasn't right, you know, because I think that, yeah. you know, any normal person with a normal mental capacity would say, no, I have done stuff in my life. Not in a boasting way, but you'd realize that you've done, you know, stuff so i don't know absolutely
1: yeah well i mean and if you the more you look into their story you know full well that there is absolutely no way that lewis could have done that expedition on his own like if he was the sole leader of the expedition it probably would have failed because of because of what you were talking about of how he had just that uh chronic depression like without clark i think the expedition would have failed catastrophically
2: yeah, I, thought it was cool t- I thought it was cool too that uh whenever he was chartered by the president to, to go out. And I mean, his first thing was, I got to go get my boy. You know, it's like, I got to go, go get my man. Let's, let's, let's do this. This is going to be fun. Yeah. yeah. Who was actually his superior in the
3: army. So yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. 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 I
0: wonder if he, he got back and having been through all of that, I mean, just imagine the stuff they went through on a daily basis, being out there, you know, no one's ever traveled this land before. They have no idea what's around the next band in the river and you know that high of adrenaline you must have had and then get back and yeah he probably had some kind of mental disorder that led him to when when he got back into normal life he just couldn't deal with it you know
1: right well and well and it's sort of like the experiences you have like when you hear about soldiers like they're always they're always functioning at a high and then they get home and their sense of purpose is basically gone when they get home right so I, yeah. I think that's really what led to his disintegration after he got back is like my sense of purpose is basically gone and I don't
0: really have anything to live for. Yeah. 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 Well, one thing that stuck yeah. out to me in that uh, you talked about the 18 mile portage, man, I, I can't even imagine that because I, I last year, a, a couple of buddies and I went up to uh, a lake here in Washington called Ross Lake. And uh, we, we, We got the boats off the water because it was super, super windy. The waves were, you know, threatening to capsize our our, uh, kayaks and we're kind of worried about it. And we got off and we had a portage over. I mean, it was maybe 100 yards. (laughs) It was so hard. You know, you got all your stuff in that in the kayaks and you're just lugging it over (laughs) rocks and timber. And I just can't imagine 18 miles of that.
3: Yeah. And if you think about that, they, after that, they drink all their alcohol. They're like, man, I'm not carrying this alcohol. Another step. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, right. it is, it is It's like, like we,
1: they, we earned this. Yeah. We earned this.
2: They carried them and they, they portaged them 18 miles with a constant threat of grizzly bears. Yeah.
1: <laughs> right. This is like, right. I right. mean, I'm, yeah. I'm really impressed that you chose that particular story. Not, I mean, just because like, obviously, yeah, Lewis and Clark, that's obviously a great duo, but the story is so vast i mean it's like how do you possibly condense all of that into oh yeah a 10 a 10 minute that's, thing because there the are, there is so much like every virtue imaginable was portrayed during that expedition in some way so i mean it's like how the heck do you even condense all that so oh. you did a good job you did a good job <laughs> condensing all that cuz that must have been Pretty
3: tough. Thank you. It was difficult. Well, basically, I just shortened like the last leg of the trip into like two sentences. Like from when they uh, basically passed through the limb high pass and then got the horses from the Shoshone. Then they eventually built canoes and then they just traveled on the rest of the rivers. (laughs) It's like that skips (laughs) over a lot of history and a lot of time, but you know, got to fit into ten minutes. So uh, that's true. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Nice work. Very nice. Very nice work. Thanks.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that was fun. One more thing that really stuck out to me: the 43 men. I didn't realize there was so many people involved in it, and there was only one fatality, one casualty. I mean, that's yeah. incredible. It, well, right. I think
3: once they, once after the first winter, uh, I think it, they did send some people back uh, when they sent all their samples and stuff back. So I think it was down to 33 people at that point. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. But it, it's very interesting. You know, there's a lot of stuff in there, like Chicago. Way learn more about her. Then there's there was a Clark had a a slave named York. uh That there's mm-hmm. interesting history there. And
0: yeah, we Scott did a post on on York. Yeah.
3: So
1: yeah, yeah. It, it, very it's, fascinating stuff. I mean, yeah, it's like how do you possibly condense all that? Because there <laughs> there's such a. I mean, you could spend your entire life doing researching this expedition and just how important it was and and how these men did, did what they did. I mean, and, I mean, and the fact that no one after them even came close to doing as well as they did. I mean, it's a real Testament to Lewis and Clark and their leadership abilities and how they complemented each other.
3: Yeah. You guys ever see that movie with, with uh, Chris Farley, where they're uh, trying to race (laughs) Lewis and Clark to the East coast and they get beat by like a hundred (laughs) yards. it's a no, hilarious movie no.
1: is it a movie or, or an SNL sketch it's
3: a movie what's it called really I can't remember what it was called uh, i never a, heard of that it's pretty like that funny uh, you know if you guys like Chris Farley's humor like Tommy Boy uh, stuff like that yeah. Black Sheep I mean it's pretty funny it's, it's him and David Spade you know as always I think. Oh my gosh! I have
1: to, I've never, never heard of this. I have to find it now.
3: They're basically racing right behind Lewis and Clark to get to the ocean. And like at the end of the movie, they're like, you know, Lewis and Clark are like a hundred yards off in the distance, and they get to the water, and they're like, no, and like their names are never remembered because they're just the second guys. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that is that's a that is tragedy at its finest. Wow. <laughs>
3: so. <laughs> well, cool. Well, let's see who's up next. Uh, Did you
1: say you I was think? next? Yeah, the mystery episode, the mystery one. Yeah,
0: all right. Scott, who who I you doing? You be... gonna tell us before we play
1: it? No, I'm oh. gonna keep my mouth shut. Although it's gonna be, it's very unexpected. I will say that.
0: All
3: you right. probably
1: are not. None of you will probably guess what I'm doing. Okay.
3: okay. All right, here we go.
1: The circus performer had finally made it back to his home country. It was remarkable that he had made it home at all. Not only was he penniless, homeless, and sick, but his appearance caused fright to almost everyone who looked at him. Stepping off the train, he suddenly realized that he had no way of contacting anyone for help. He felt despair sink in as he huddled into a corner, hoping to get some sleep and forget his troubles, if only for a few hours. The police arrived and began to question him. Who are you? Where are you going? The question suddenly made the performer remember the card, the name on the card in his pocket. Frederick Treves and Joseph Merrick, the Elephant Man Friendship, love, generosity, compassion, kindness… These were not things Joseph Merrick had seen much of in his young life. Born in 1862 in Leicester, England, life was normal for the first few years, but suddenly His body seemed to turn against him. He began to develop severe deformities all across his body, and his skin began to grow thick and spongy. His head swelled to almost three feet in diameter, and his right arm and feet began to expand dramatically. Due to the deformities spreading to his face, he was unable to speak clearly or show normal facial expressions. As if to make matters worse, a hip injury left him unable to walk without the aid of a cane. His mother passed away when he was nine, and his father remarried. Merrick later described her as cruel and taunting. It was sometimes so bad that Merrick chose to remain outside in the streets rather than go home. He worked at a cigar rolling factory for two years, but his deformed right hand made it too difficult to keep up. His father tried to help him find work as a door-to-door salesman, but his appearance was too frightful for this line of work to continue. Eventually, in 1879, Merrick's father and stepmother told him to leave, as they could not cope with him any longer. He was seventeen years old. His uncle Charles took him in for a brief period, but Charles eventually could not support him financially. Merrick ended up in the Leicester Union workhouse, where he remained for four years. He eventually left the workhouse to join a traveling freak show to display his deformities to the public. Freak shows were a popular form of entertainment in Victorian-era London society, and Merrick was an exceptional specimen. He was advertised as the Elephant Man, described as half-man, half-elephant, and, by one proprietor, as the most remarkable human being to draw the breath of life. Merrick had been put on display for private showings in the back of a shop in Whitechapel, which happened to be located near the London Hospital. Inside the hospital was the man who would eventually change Merrick's life forever. By this time, Frederick Treves was a prominent surgeon and anatomist. The son of an upholsterer, he studied at the London Hospital Medical College during the 1870s and was well-liked by those he interacted with. He was informed about Merrick and paid a shilling for a private viewing. Initially, Treves was as repulsed as any other by the very sight of this vision of humanity gone horribly wrong. But as a doctor and a man of science, he was also fascinated. With Merrick's permission, he would examine him three different times, taking measurements and photographs in an effort to determine what was the cause of Merrick's condition. Treves noted that, despite Merrick's appearance, he appeared to be in overall good health. Merrick eventually forbade examinations, claiming they made him feel like cattle at a market. Merrick returned to his life as a curiosity, but not after receiving a calling card from Treves. This would later prove to be a lifesaver. By this time, public tastes were changing toward freak shows, and they became outlawed in the United Kingdom in 1886. The UK police were becoming increasingly militant in closing down human curiosity shows, and Merrick eventually joined a traveling circus show. The show traveled all across continental Europe and eventually made its way to Brussels, Belgium. Merrick's manager had become wary of the possible negative attention his new charge drew. He eventually robbed and deserted Merrick, who once again found himself alone, penniless, and homeless. He eventually made it back to England, ending up at the Liverpool Street Station. In addition to his appearance causing fright, he had developed a bronchial infection that made him unable to ask others for help. The police showed up and found Merrick huddled in a corner with nothing but Treves' medical card to identify him. Treves was called. Upon arriving, he recognized Merrick and made arrangements to transport him to the London Hospital. Merrick stayed at the hospital for the next five months, his health gradually improving. Though Treves understood that Merrick's condition was incurable and that his life expectancy was short, he also knew that there were challenges for covering his long-term care. Hospital funds and staff attention were running out for Merrick, but Treves could not simply let him back out onto the streets. He partnered with the hospital's director in an effort to either transfer Merrick to another hospital or to raise funds to keep him as a permanent resident. The Times published a public appeal outlining Merrick's plight, and the response was significant. Enough donations poured in that it became feasible to allow Merrick to remain a permanent resident at London Hospital. This was made official in December of 1886. Merrick was moved to two basement rooms next to the courtyard, which were furnished to suit Merrick's unique needs. For the first time in years, something like a normal life had finally come to Merrick. When he became a resident, Treves and Merrick became close friends. Treves came to understand Merrick's impaired way of speech, and visited him daily. When he first met Merrick, he believed him to be mentally impaired, but as their relationship progressed, he saw that Merrick was a very intelligent, well-spoken, and sensitive man with a curiosity about life and the world. Treves arranged for one of his female friends, Miss Lila Maturin, to meet Merrick. Merrick was understandably nervous, as his appearance created a barrier between him and women for most of his life. The meeting was brief due to Merrick being so overcome with emotion. He often said that she was the first woman who ever smiled at him. Maturin and Merrick kept in touch, writing letters and sending gifts. He met various other women in his four years at the hospital and was captivated by all of them. Merrick even met Treves' wife when he made an arranged visit to Treves' home. This visit came about due to Merrick's desire to see the inside of a real house. Treves continued to give Merrick attention, care, and special arrangements in the last four years of his life. Merrick was an avid reader and even wrote some of his own poetry. He would also construct models out of card, the most impressive being a replica of Mainz Cathedral. By this time, Merrick had attracted the attention of high society. Actress Madge Kendall raised funds and publicized sympathy for Merrick, even sending him photos of herself. Merrick left his cathedral model to her after his death. He received visits from prominent members of the upper class, to whom Merrick would write letters and send handmade gifts. One of the most notable of Merrick's visitors was Alexandra, Princess of Wales. She and the prince were visiting the hospital to open two new buildings, and she expressed a desire to meet Merrick. The royal party made their way to his room, and the princess shook his hand. Merrick was beside himself with joy. She gave him a signed picture of herself and sent him a Christmas card every year. Merrick's friend, Madge Kendall, was able to arrange for him to visit the theater, a desire Merrick had long held. Treves recalled that Merrick was awestruck, going on and on about the show for weeks. Treves also arranged for Merrick to visit the countryside on at least three occasions, where Merrick would roam the various estates and collect flowers. He even made the acquaintance of a farm laborer, who described Merrick as a fascinating and well-educated man. In spite of all the kindnesses of Treves and others in his life, Merrick's condition gradually worsened. He became increasingly unable to live without assistance, and came to spend most days in bed with diminishing energy. He eventually passed away on April 11, 1890, at the age of 27. It was determined that he died of a dislocated neck. Treves mentioned that Merrick had always wanted to sleep like regular people, but could not due to the weight of his head potentially suffocating him. Treves concluded that Merrick had died from trying to sleep with his head lying down, or, as he later wrote, of the pathetic and hopeless desire to be like other people. After being autopsied, Merrick's skeleton was preserved and his remains buried in the City of London Cemetery. Speculation of what was truly the cause of Merrick's condition persists to this day. Frederick Treves went on to greater renown as a surgeon in the course of his career, receiving a knighthood as one of Queen Victoria's surgeons. He even saved the life of King Edward VII during a case of appendicitis. Treves also became a prominent and prolific author. He chronicled his remarkable relationship with Merrick in his book The Elephant Man and Other Reminiscence. He died at the age of 70 in 1923. About Merrick, Treves wrote, As a specimen of humanity, Merrick was ignoble and repulsive. But the spirit of Merrick, if it could be seen in the form of the living, would assume the figure of an upstanding and heroic man, smooth-browed and clean of limb, and with eyes that flashed undaunted courage. The unlikely friendship between Frederick Shreves and Joseph Merrick has been immortalized in various plays, books, and films. Merrick himself remains widely known in popular culture as the Elephant Man, with his silk hood and hat remaining an indelible image in the cultural imagination. While it is easy to say that Merrick is remembered strictly for his terrible medical conditions, Merrick's life story no doubt endures today as a towering example of humanity at its best and its worst. Despite receiving horrendous treatment from those who saw him as nothing more than an animal, he also received the virtues of one who saw past the body and into the soul. Treves understood that Merrick deserved a life like any other, and made it his mission to make it possible. Thanks to Frederick Treves and many others, Merrick was able to say at the end of his life that he had truly experienced friendship, love, generosity, compassion, and kindness. Merrick often summed up his feelings toward himself with a quote from the Isaac Watt's poem, False Greatness.
0: "'Tis true my form is something odd, But blaming me is blaming God. Could I create myself anew? I would not fail in pleasing you. If I could reach from pole to pole, Or grasp the ocean with a span, I would be measured by the soul, The mind's the standard of the man." Very good, Scott. That yeah, that kind of threw me for a loop there. I had no clue who you were talking about. And <laughs> uh, I, might, might I say that uh, that guy at the end there? What a great voice! <laughs> yeah, a, well, he's like a, he's said, a paid the... actor.
2: He's a paid. Is right, yeah.
3: <laughs> just a voice actor?
1: <laughs> I felt like I felt like that was the highest state of emotion I've ever reached in an episode. So, I, yeah,
3: I mean, yeah, cool. man, that was uh, powerful. Yeah. Powerful is how I would describe that. Very powerful. What a great example of kindness and love. I think that that's, I just I thank you for bringing that type of a example into this. This me. I think that sometimes we think about, you know, these duos just doing great things and like like two men doing something together to achieve something that's awesome and great, but also, you know, just having a kindness and one can be receiving and one can be giving. And, and also, you know, the doctor in that case, you know, he received as well in, in the relationship that he had with that guy. And so... Very powerful. Uh.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, and I, I, I knew at some point that we would get, that I, I at least would get to that story. Because, I mean, there's just every, so, so many virtues on display there. But I was like, I was sort of torn. I, I thought it was going to be an Instagram post at some point, but there's really no way to do it because there's so much there that you have to talk about. So I'm like, okay. I, it can't be a post. It can't, it maybe can't be a podcast episode in and of itself. So I, I thought this was perfect a perfect opportunity to do it. And like you were saying too, Ethan, that it's a very unlikely duo. Like when we think of like the concept of duos, we think of people going out to achieve this great goal, but in reality, it was more just a friendship, a relationship and how that's often enough, you know, for someone like Joseph Merrick, who had that condition, like, and was so used to being mistreated or seen as a freak or not even looked at at all. Like to have this one man come in and say, you deserve a life like everybody else. I mean, what a great example of just humanity.
2: Yeah. One thing that hit me strongly with that was just kind of his, when he got off the, the, the train at the train station, I mean, just like this, just completely helpless. Uh, I mean, he was helpless and he was hopeless probably too. I mean, he was just huddled up in the corner. He couldn't, nobody even wanted to see him because of his disfigurement and he couldn't speak because of his illness and, and everything else. I mean, all he had was one thing probably to his name in the pocket and it was the card, the card of, of the doctor. And so, yeah, I just think that's, that's awesome that, <clears throat> you know, I don't know the whole timing of everything, but that's one thing that he specifically probably kept, you know, he probably was thinking specifically that oh, I'm, I'm going to keep this for specific for, for some reason, maybe he didn't know why, but you know, he kept that card.
1: And then look yeah, what it led to saved like, his life. Right? Yeah. yeah. Had, he, had life, he not probably. had that, I mean, could have been sent, yeah, to, he, he could have
2: been taken to prison or whatever else. And yeah, probably, probably would, have, would died. have died. Wouldn't have gotten the, the medical help.
1: And he already had a really short life. Like he didn't even make it to age 30, but I mean, had he not had that, like, I mean, that would have been four years of genuine love and compassion, completely gone. You know, he would have ended his life as nothing more than just a freak. But then you look at his story From that point on, whenever he was rescued by having that card and it's like, oh, my gosh, like his story up until that point is kind of just humanity at its lowest. But then after that incident with the train station and having the card, it's like that's humanity at its best. So I think that's what makes his life so remarkable is that you see everything like the best and worst of people.
3: So one of the questions I had was, how did he, so you said at the end that he was trying to sleep with his laying on his head like a normal person, and maybe that like disc located his neck somehow? How did he sleep otherwise?
1: Well, for, in the research that I did, he slept kind of in a hunched position, so like he like like kind of like we're sitting in our chairs right now with his head leaning on his knees. So he kind of slept in a ball essentially, oh, really? which I don't know how anybody could sleep that way comfortably at all, but it got and it's also kind of a very poignant way to for him to go to die you know like he dies trying to be like other people and just saying I'm going to do this you know whether I live or die I'm going to do this so his death is also very poignant in that regard
0: hmm. uh, it was cool. yeah it's cool it seemed like he had a lot of influence on people who did take the time to get to know him and one thing it kind of made me think of is yeah we can you know see some people and it looks like they're just like a, a parasite to society, you know, you can think of them that way, but they, they have so much they could offer you, even if you would just give them a chance and speak to them. So it's a good reminder of that.
1: Absolutely. Well, and it sort of reminds me of certain, certain videos I've seen of homeless people being interviewed randomly, and they're some of the most well-spoken intelligent people you'll ever meet. And yet you look at them and you think, Oh, homeless. Oh, they're just, you know, lowest on the totem pole. And yet, but they're human beings like the rest of us, you know, and, That's really what comes through in Joseph Merrick's story is that he was a human being and Treves clearly saw that and said, I'm going to, I'm going to see to it that he lives as much as like the rest of us as possible.
3: Yeah. And and can you imagine like his parents just like, we can't deal with you anymore. So you need to leave the house. Yeah. Um, He was kind of a product
2: of his environment to a certain extent as well. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, and his, and his, I think he said, I think that he said later on that the loss of his mother was, the greatest loss in his life Mm -hmm. and to lose her at such a young age and there's actually this very interesting thing and I was I almost wanted to put it in the episode but I thought it was just too weird was he came to there was this really bizarre superstition at the time that if you were frightened by an elephant that your child would then be born with defects Mm -hmm. and his mother before he was born his mother was at a circus or something and an elephant terrified her or something And then he was born that way. And it's like, how (laughs) bizarre, how bizarre is that? And I thought, there's no way I can put this in here. This is just too, it's just too weird.
2: (laughs) You know what that means? But the the myth is, the legend is true. That's what that means. (laughs) But he
1: actually, but he actually believed it. Like Joseph Mayer genuinely believed that that's what caused his condition is that his mother was frightened by an elephant when he was inside her womb. And that led to this happen. just so bizarre. Like what a different time period to live in. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Also, that I would definitely, yeah. Oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say. Also, the governments are the government was cracking down on these freak shows, uh, like these. You know, that, that's kind of weird. I guess they didn't want things. and
1: just weird that they even existed to begin with. You know, yeah. like that's that says that says a lot about about Humanity. human civilization at the <laughs> yeah. time that something like that could actually exist. Yeah, just putting. The, but but one thing that a lot of people misunderstand about his story is that they th- they thought they sometimes think that he was taken against his will and just put on display, but he did it willingly to himself because that was his, he came to believe that that was the only way that he could survive and make money. So he willingly participated in these shows. It's not like he was taken against his will by evil people with nets and whips. Like he willingly subjected himself to it. Yeah. But thank God he didn't have to live like that the rest of his life.
2: Yeah. Crazy story. story. Because of the charity
3: of that guy. Yeah. Wild. Cool. Very great example of charity and love and, kindness. Love that.
2: Well, thank you. All right. Well, you guys are blowing it out of the water. We're, we're uh two for two for sure.
3: All right, Ethan, you're right up on. next. <laughs> okay.
2: All right. So I, I'm, uh, well, let's just get into I, it.
1: I'm expecting a masterpiece. <laughs> yeah,
3: it is. I've heard the first five seconds. And it's, it's great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> first, fi- first five seconds are good. Yeah.
3: And also I, I just will note that the first five seconds of Ethan's is the exact same as the first five seconds of mine. <laughs> And
2: we did not collaborate together. We did not collaborate. (laughs) Very spooky. When partners work together, then it's just, you know, masterpieces (laughs) are created. Very very spooky. We must be related. So here we go. Here's Ethan's. The year was 1903, and the Wright brothers had successfully built the powered Wright Flyer, the Wright brothers. This is the tale of two brothers together, against all odds, accomplished something that no human being had ever done before. Sustained flight. Wilbur Wright was born in 1867 and Orville Wright in 1871. At a young age, these brothers were very curious. One day, their father brought home a toy helicopter for them. It was about a foot long, made of paper, bamboo, and cork with a rubber band to twirl the rotor. They played with it until it broke, and then they built their own. This sparked their interest in flying. Years passed, and the boys did not have the means to explore their passion for flying machines. The brothers were very resourceful, and they adapted their business as needed to grow with the times. They tried many different business strategies, and after several major failures, landed on commercial printing later to capitalize on the national bike craze in 1892 the brothers opened a repair and sales shop called the Wright cycle company at this time they started using this endeavor to fund their ever-growing interest in the skies they had heard reports and seen photos of large dramatic gliders soaring through the skies in germany the year 1896 brought some very important aeronautical events, including the death of a very famous German glider in an aviation accident. It was at this time the Wright brothers' desire to fly motivated them to act and create something of their own. The thought at the time, from experienced practitioners, was to attach powerful engines to airframes with little to no controls. Obviously, this did not work. After much research in observing birds, Wilbur concluded that they changed the angle of their wings to make their bodies roll left or right. With this information, he decided this was a good design for a flying machine to turn, to bank or lean into the turn like a bird. They started to make small models to test some of their ideas. In 1900, the brothers began testing manned gliding experiments. Living in Ohio, they traveled to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina because of its consistent wind and soft sandy landing surfaces. At first, they tested large unmanned gliders with tethers flying them like a kite. Then they put sandbags on the gliders. After building enough confidence, Wilbur climbed into the contraption and piloted the glider by pulling strings that warped the wings, mimicking the birds he had studied. At this time, being an older brother, Wilbur did all of the gliding to protect his younger brother as well as he did not want to have to explain to their father if something would have happened. After mastering the gliding, the brothers were ready to add power to the equation. They needed to solve two problems, lift and drag. They developed the full equation for lift, determining how large the wings needed to be and how fast they needed to go. Next, they determined the drag and the power-to-weight ratio, how much power was needed to overcome the weight and wind variables. The year was 1903, and the Wright brothers had successfully built the powered Wright Flyer. Made from lightweight spruce, cloth for the wing coverings, hand-carved wooden propellers, and a gasoline engine fabricated in their bike shop. The Wright Flyer had a wingspan of 40 feet, weighed 605 pounds, and had 12 horsepower. On December 13, 1903, after a coin flip, it was decided that Wilbur would make the very first attempt to fly, but after three seconds the engine stalled and he crashed down to the ground, causing damage to the flyer. After the flyer was repaired, on December 17, with a furious and freezing headwind of 27 miles an hour, the brothers made two flights each. Orville went first, the engine roared as he climbed in, the cold wind in his face as he started down the launching ramp. After 12 seconds of sustained, propelled flight, he landed, having traveled only 120 feet. They tried again and again, taking turns manning the aircraft. On the last test, with Wilbur at the helm, winds gusting, his brother running alongside the machine, he was able to gain control and fly for over 800 feet before it darted down and struck the ground. They had sustained flight about 10 feet above the ground for almost three football fields. They had done it! There were five witnesses and one picture of this amazing achievement. The brothers immediately sent their father a telegram requesting that he inform the press of this achievement. However, the local paper refused to publish the story saying that the flights were too short. After that, the telegraph operator leaked the message to a different newspaper that concocted a highly inaccurate article about what happened that day. The Wright brothers were bothered, but not deterred. A year later, with their experience and knowledge, they built the Wright Flyer 2 and tested it in a field closer to their home. In August of 1904, they flew again, this time 1,300 feet. In September, they flew again, 4,000 feet with over a minute and a half in the air. In November and December, they went three miles of sustained flight, almost five minutes in the air. In 1905, they flew the newest iteration of their aircraft for 24 miles, or until the engine itself ran out of gas, a total airtime of 38 minutes. A new age had opened for the world and the possibilities were endless. At this time, the brothers were not concerned about the press. They feared competitors stealing their ideas. And still, without a patent, they refused to fly. They wrote the United States, British, French, and German governments with an offer to sell their flying machines, but were turned down by all as they required a firm contract before any demonstrations. After being denied a patent, they hired an attorney that fought for them and they were eventually granted a patent for the method of an airplane's flight control, which is still used today. Competitors in Europe called the brothers liars about their achievements but in later years admitted their error after witnessing a Wright Brothers demonstration. The Wright Company was incorporated in 1909. The brothers sold their personal patents to the company for $100,000, received one-third of the shares in a $1 million stock issue, and 10% royalty on every plane sold. The success of these brothers can be attributed to their incredible work ethic, desire to accomplish, ability to adapt, grit to overcome, and the strength to maintain motivation through trials and failures.
3: That was really good, man.
2: There it is.
0: Well, that was good. That was that was very really good. good. Very insightful. I lo- love the music and the the sound effects you put in there. That was great.
1: Yeah. I know if it, had I done that episode I would have put in more cartoon sound effects but <laughs> so <laughs> many <laughs> great <laughs> opportunities for the, <laughs> just like E. Yeah. Coyote stuff, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it
2: it it was truly interesting to see kind of the the progression. I mean, it in in studying this out, I mean, it was just like year after year they with, with this hard work and dedication to their craft, pun intended, um they they just got better and better. I mean, even towards the end, it was like that. You know, the first one was only 120 feet that, that they flew, and that actually is the famous picture that you see is uh, of them flying the airplane, the first flight that was. Um, uh, um, that was one of the brothers that that flew that. I can't remember which one it was. It was it the was, older brother. No, it, wasn't, no, it, it was wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't Wilbur. It was. It was. Orville. It, was it was Orville that that flew the first I one. Thought- which
1: a, I thought I thought that was I had never learned I had never known that about them either that they they decided who was going to fly by a coin toss yeah that is that is hilarious I
2: <laughs> and and I, th- I thought it was funny too that it originally said that their their dad was so worried about that he heard their their dad excuse me made them promise that they would never fly together <laughs> so that if something happened it wouldn't be like a double catastrophe for the family <laughs> Right, right. Which was just really interesting, but yeah, I mean, they went from 120 feet to 300 feet to 800 feet to 1,300 feet to 4,000 feet, and then it just it just kept going and going and going. And then they got to a point to where it, you know, they ran the engine out of gas, and they're just flying circles around these big fields and flying, you know, 24 miles in that the last one that they went. And then they didn't have the patents, yeah. and so they were like, "Well, we're done. You know, we can't. <laughs> yeah. We too many people are looking at this, and they're going to steal our technology." So kind of halted until that's pretty that's
1: pretty brilliant yeah no that's i know that's a well and it, it also kind of makes you wonder too like as they're doing all of this like what what's going through their minds with each of these tests how they keep going farther and farther and farther like i'm just trying to imagine how the elation they must have been feeling with each test like oh my gosh we're doing it we're get we're seeing our dream get closer and closer like i mean what what a tremendous feeling that must have been for both of them
3: yeah the part that got me was when they were you know w the the brothers one of' them was was in the thing and the other one was running right along next to him uh that just got me uh, I feel like you know that's kind of as of having, like, having a brother you know if my brother was in something like a death machine like that, I'd be running right there next to him <laughs> making sure that he was all right right so, like we like test the, dummy brother
2: like
1: <laughs> wait wait till I let go before you get airborne. <laughs>
0: So. it was cool uh it, it seemed like the spark for their their uh the reason that they got into this was their dad brought them home that toy and it kind of one thing that i thought of was how impactful you can be as a father you know uh you know he probably there was a reason he brought that toy home he probably saw it as his kids were really uh interested in in learning things interested in in uh new things and so he brought this home, and and look what it turned into. They they developed the first powered flying machine.
1: Yeah, it's really the father's legacy. It's his responsibility. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't even sure. I didn't even really yeah. make
2: that connection. You're one hundred percent right. You know, yeah, that's that's a,
1: that's a very that's a very good point. Yeah, I know, like, I seem to remember like reading when I when I was a kid, like reading about that, like when you were talking about in your in in the the story about the about the toy and I could have sworn that I had learned that information at some point as a kid. And like, and maybe like I was at a store or something with my mom and they had a replica of that particular toy that they had. So like that just really triggered a memory. I'm like, Oh my gosh. Like I just, I just had this memory of learning about that story with the toy that that's what inspired them. And I'm just like, wow, what a, what a memory trigger. Wow.
2: One thing that's, that's really interesting is that, you know, so Jared and I were from North Carolina and it's kind of like the pride of North Carolina, right? On all of our license plates, we have first-in-flight because the first flight happened in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. But what's funny is that they weren't even from North Carolina. They're from Ohio. Yeah. And uh, there's actually this, they call it a, a friendly feud between North Carolina and Ohio because North Carolina is like first-in-flight. But I think Ohio, on, on their uh, coins or on their you know, quarter, their mem- memorial quarter or whatever, I think it says, home of the aviation pioneers. <laughs> and so it's kind of like this little like friendly feud that they have
0: That's
1: right right that's or it's like like Graceland being the birthplace of Elvis kind of thing yeah
3: <laughs> that was excellent man
1: uh yeah really good work really good all done.
3: great well done well Jamie you're up next brother anything you want to say before right. we kick this thing off
0: uh no I'll just I'll just let it roll and we can we can discuss afterwards all right let it we, roll here we go roll roll tape <laughs> The two men staggered up the endless icy slope. They had been in the death zone, above 8,000 meters, for about 24 hours at this point, and their exhaustion and hypoxia were beginning to force their minds to entertain two attractive options, going back and simply stopping to rest. No one would have blamed them for choosing the former, but the latter, although tempting, was the most dangerous thing they could possibly do. At 28,800 feet, and with a wind chill of negative 65 degrees Fahrenheit, simply stopping and closing their eyes for a few minutes could be deadly. Many climbers who did so, in this kind of environment, simply never woke up again. The two men knew this, and as they took off their oxygen masks to claim a few deep breaths, their eyes met. They both knew what the other was thinking, the mental battle going on in each of their minds. Then the second climber's lips parted, and his face transformed into his iconic smile. The lead climber knew what this meant – climb on. He went to put a foot forward, but as he gazed up and peered out from his snow goggles, a large rock wall slowly came into view. In an instant, this second wind was snatched from him, and all the doubt came back like a thundering avalanche. A near vertical 40-foot section of rock stood between them and the summit. He now needed to summon energy reserves he no longer had, but there was no way around. The climber gritted his teeth, gripped the rock face with his mittened hands, and started up.
4: My solar plexus was tight with fear as I ploughed on. Halfway up, I stopped, exhausted. I could look down 10,000 feet between my legs, and I have never felt more insecure. Anxiously, I waved Tenzing up to me. Edmund Hillary, Everest, 1953.
0: Edmund Hillary was from Auckland, New Zealand. The Kiwi was a skinny, shy, loner of a child growing up, but Ed always found his place in the New Zealand countryside and in the pages of his favourite adventure novels. These two passions and the healthy living promoted by his parents, would form a foundation for his life spent scaling the world's highest peaks. By the time he was 20, he was visiting the Southern Alps on New Zealand's South Island, and getting into the sport of mountaineering. Ed was a conscientious objector at the outbreak of World War II, but then served in the Royal Navy in 1943, once New Zealand was threatened by the Japanese expansion into the South Pacific. After the war, he met Harry Ayers, and was fully introduced to the mountaineering lifestyle and quickly learned climbing skills from Ayers and good friend George Lowe, calling the pair the first real friends he'd ever had. Hillary was invited on the 1951 British Reconnaissance Expedition to the south side of Everest, and they were successful in scouting impossible route through the Khumbu Icefall and up the southern flank of Everest. Tenzing Norgay was most likely from Tibet, though there is no clear record of where he was born and grew up literally in the shadow of Mount Everest or Chumalungma as the people of the Khumbu Valley call it. Tenzing's nationality has always been in dispute. His family were from Tibet, he grew up in Nepal and he also spent a good portion of his life in India. He moved to Darjeeling to marry in 1935 and got involved in the quickly growing high altitude porter businesses out of Darjeeling, heading towards the Himalayas. Tenzing got a crash course in mountaineering during these expeditions and this would lead him to his future career as a high altitude Sherpa. His success at high altitude led some to joke that he probably had a third lung. His performance and his magnetic smile made him a favourite of the expedition leaders. Tenzing was hired by the 1952 Swiss expedition to Everest and reached a height of 28,199 feet on the south call before turning around a world record at the time. This made him a priceless asset to any future Everest expedition. A number of countries had been organising Everest expeditions throughout the early 20th century, but the British set their aims squarely on being the first to climb Everest. Everest had been attempted starting in 1921, and George Mallory and Andrew Irvine were thought to have almost reached the summit in 1924. Before disappearing on the northeast ridge, Mallory's body was found in 1999 down a fall line on the northeast ridge where he is presumed to have fallen. Incredibly, it was remarkably preserved after 75 years later, due to the bitterly cold climate of Everest's north face. By the time of the 1953 Everest expedition, it was only a matter of time before Everest was climbed. The British had scouted the route, and the Swiss had almost made it all the way up in 1952. Tenzing and Hillary met each other for the first time in Kathmandu in March of 1953, and they quickly grew to like and respect each other. The expedition ascended up the south side of Everest, setting up Camps 1, 2 and 3, and then on April 26, Hillary and Tenzing roped up together for the first time. They set off for Camp 4, which Tenzing had been to just a year prior with the Swiss. The men reached Camp 4 and enjoyed some biscuits left behind by the Swiss before descending back down the mountain. While on the descent, their bond would be tested for the first time. As Hillary attempted to jump across a crevasse, he landed on the edge, and a snow bridge gave way and he fell in. But Tenzing, now a veteran Himalayan climber, instinctively braced for the potential fall, and he caught Hillary as he went only a few feet into the chasm. Hillary commented when they got back to base camp,
4: Without Tenzing, I would have been finished today.
0: The incident highlighted the yin and yang of their climbing partnership. Hillary, 34 at the time of the expedition, was a skilled, daring climber whose stamina was unmatched. But by all accounts, he was a bit of a swashbuckler and did not hesitate in taking risks. Tenzing, 39, was usually the rock of any expedition, and this was his seventh trip to Everest. He was a strong, dependable climber who could be counted on to do the hard work. And this sharp mountaineer's mind and quick instincts were a perfect complement to Hillary. With all gear at the South Call Camp 4, on May 26th, Tom Bordelon and Charles Evans were chosen to make the first crack at the summit, but their closed-circuit oxygen systems malfunctioned, forcing Evans to climb completely without supplemental oxygen and they were forced to turn around just 300 feet below the summit. And so it was Hillary and Tenzing's turn. After a few days of bad weather, the pair started up with their Sherpa support team of three on May 28th. They made it up to 27,900 feet with 50 to 60 pound packs on their backs, and made camp for the night on an icy precipice the support team descended, leaving Hillary and Tenzing alone. They settled in for the night, turned on their sleeping oxygen, and with their masks on, nodded off to sleep. They awoke two hours later, when their oxygen bottles ran out, quickly lowering their body temperatures, and they had to replace them with new bottles. The men woke early on May 29th, ate a good breakfast, and started ascending at 6.30am. There were no more camps to make now. It was summit or bust. The snow during the initial push was what Hillary referred to as a climber's curse. The surface was a hard crust, but once they put their full weight on it, the crust gave way to soft powder, and they found themselves up to their hips in snow. Obviously, this destroyed any potential for developing a climbing rhythm, which was essential, and wasted their energy and supplemental oxygen. About halfway up, Hillary noticed that Tenzing was struggling to breathe, A quick check of his oxygen mask revealed a frozen valve. Fixing it and checking his own only to reveal a similar issue, the two breathed steadily again and continued up. It was here where they met eyes with a large vertical face of rock on the ridge that Bertillon and Evans had warned them about. This would have been a fun challenge had it been near sea level, and if they would have had climbing shoes and the ability to use their bare hands. But at nearly 29,000 feet, it was a formidable obstacle. Knowing climbing the rock was too risky, Hillary saw a crack between the rock and the cornice, skirting the entire rock face on the east side. Hilary stepped towards the crack.
4: Leaving Tenzing to belay me as best he could, I jammed my way into this crack, then kicking backwards with my crampons, I sank their spikes deep into the frozen snow behind me and levered myself off the ground. Taking advantage of every little rock hole and all the force of knee, shoulder, and arms I could muster, I literally cramped on backwards up the crack with a fervent prayer that the cornice would remain attached to the rock. I inched my way upwards until I could finally reach over the top of the rock and drag myself out of the crack and onto a wide ledge. For a few moments, I lay regaining my breath and for the first time really felt the fierce determination that nothing could stop us now from reaching the top.
0: They were now at 28,880 feet, with just 150 vertical feet from the summit, and the last major obstacle was now below them. With each new crest it appeared they were finally at the mountain's terminus, only to be fooled by yet another false summit. But eventually, the man saw an unmistakable rounded snow dome with nothing but atmosphere all around it. It was
4: too late to take risks now. Peering from side to side and thrusting with my ice axe, I tried to discover a possible cornice, but everything seemed solid and firm. A few more whacks of the ice axe, a few very weary steps, and
0: we were on the summit. The time read 11.30am. It was May 29, 1953 and the two men stood at the highest point on the planet. No one else in the world knew it at the time, but these two men had just arrived at the final frontier on Earth. The last great exploration to the unknown was complete. Hillary went to shake hands with his companion to congratulate him, but he was met with a more affectionate response.
4: Even beneath his oxygen masks and the icicles hanging from his hair, I could see his infectious grin of sheer delight. I held out my hand, and in the silence we shook, in good Anglo-Saxon fashion. But this was not enough for Tenzing, and he impulsively threw his arm around my shoulders, and we thumped each other on the back in mutual congratulations.
0: The man spent only 15 minutes on the summit before starting the arduous descent. Hillary took out his camera and snapped a few photos of the summit. Tenzing posed at the top of the world with his ice axe above his head, bearing the flags of Nepal, Great Britain and India. Hillary refused to have his own photo taken, stating later that he figured Tenzing had never used a camera before, and that the summit of Everest was hardly the place to show him how. But one wonders if there was a more touching reason behind this. Perhaps Hillary knew that had Tenzing taken a photo of him, then that would be the photo on the front of every newspaper in the world. Instead, the most famous photo in mountaineering history is that of a Nepalese man, atop the summit of Everest. If this is the case, the humility displayed by Hillary here is something truly remarkable.
3: Nice. Nice, man.
1: Bravo. Bravo.
3: Very good. I'm glad we waited the whole 13 minutes and listened to that one.
0: <laughs> I just did cut it off at 10.
3: What a great story, man. Like, I, I you know, I had, honestly, I'd never even heard, I, I mean, I never heard of that specific story of, of those guys climbing that mountain and, um, very interesting. And, you know, I, I, I thought I didn't even know it was happening in the fifties, uh,
2: but very cool what about yeah, those other not that long ago th- yeah what about those other two guys that got 300 feet from the summit and then had to turn around
0: yeah i mean that's that's the, obviously no one knows their names and you know they really scouted out the route and and the the 40 foot rock face that they faced was obviously the hillary step that that's not what it's called and uh obviously no one knew that was there until those two other guys saw it and they warned them when they got back down uh hey guys just to let you know there's this obstacle that you're going to meet and it looks pretty gnarly
2: <laughs> <laughs> i wonder if they still do they still take that same path today
0: yeah so that's that's the south uh the south climb on everest you can they go the the south side which is the kumbu icefall and then up the the lhotse face to the south col and then up the hillary step there's also a, a North, Northeast Ridge, right, which is where they first climbed Everest, uh, which is where George Mallory died and, and Andrew Irvin. And uh, it depended on back then. Uh, so the Chinese who who took control of Tibet kind of around that time in the 20s, they, um, they stopped all uh, permits because they had to get a permit from the government to climb. And that's why they ended up on the south side. So it just kind of depended on who who was what willing to was let them it? climb. Yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, I, I would love my I'd love my uncle to hear this because he was an avid mountain climber for a good chunk of his life and yeah, he actually right. he actually got within two thousand feet of the summit of Everest. So I would love to
0: Oh really? Hear it. I didn't know that. Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'd love to he's yeah, yeah. He's done quite a few. I'd love wow. I would love to hear it i i bet he knows all about these guys too i'd love to hear his take on it
0: yeah and i I want to give a shout out to uh it's actually my that clearly wasn't my voice the uh the kiwi accent yeah Uh, that that's my uh my chiropractor actually he's from new zealand uh, oh nice saunders so (laughs) shout out to him i i had asked him uh just a couple days ago if he'd be willing to and and he was he was up for it and obviously hillary's uh a major figure of historical figure in new zealand he's like kind of like one of the beatles in new zealand so uh <laughs> did he come he over to your p- did
1: he just come over and you record at your place or did you go to him or how did you go about doing uh, we
0: just did a zoom call just like this and, and oh. uh recorded it there so very that was nice. pretty cool that's awesome
1: that was great yeah, yeah. very very authentic i must say <laughs>
0: yes yeah. yeah, much much better than the, the pathetic attempt i made at it. so
1: <laughs> it's hard accent to do gag reel. gag reel.
0: yeah <laughs>
3: Oh man, that that's so cool. What a cool story. Uh, and also the ending at the end, the, the, the thing about the picture, I thought that was a really interesting insight.
0: Yeah. I mean, pure, pure speculation on my point, but, uh, on my part, but, uh, I do wonder because Hillary in later life, he did a lot of work in Nepal, uh, a lot of philanthropy, you know, uh, making schools and, and, uh, just trying to improve the life of the Sherpa people in the region. So he did a lot of work with them. So I often wonder, you know, did he did he do that so that it wouldn't be, you know, the face of a of a Westerner on every newspaper, and you know, everything. Every time you think of that first ascent of Everest, you see that picture of of Tenzing on the top. So that's kind of a cool story, a touching story.
2: Yeah. Well, he he had um, sa- he had saved his life,
0: too. Yeah, exactly.
1: I'm amazed that they even had the energy to do anything like that. Cause from what I understand, like whenever you make the, you make a summit up to Everest, you're basically half dead at that point. So the fact yeah. that they even had energy to take a photo or stay up there for 15 minutes at all, right. that's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They, they had been uh, above. So the death zone, they consider above 8,000 feet. Your, your body's like literally dying because it's it's so deprived of oxygen up there. And they had been up there for over twenty-four hours at that point.
3: What do you mean twenty-eight thousand uh, feet?
0: Uh, twenty-eight thousand feet. So yeah, it eight yeah, thousand sorry, I said feet, uh eight thousand meters. Oh, okay. So uh, t- today they only do four camps. So they don't do in the in the day when they climbed it, they did nine camps because they wanted to get gear because to get gear up there is so difficult, especially back then. Yeah. So they they developed nine camps and then they they made a crack at the summit. Hmm.
2: And then that embrace, amazing. that embrace at the top of the summit. I mean, it's just like pure joy. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, you know,
0: yeah. no, 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 we're well, not, we're not shaking hands. Was it. shake hands? <laughs> yeah. You know,
2: brothers got a hug. Brothers
3: don't shake. Yeah. Brothers got <laughs> yeah. a hug. That's the second Chris Farley reference for this episode. Yes.
1: Yeah. It's like, yeah, we're, we're, we're too brotherly for handshakes here. <laughs> right.
3: That's awesome, man. Yeah. What a cool,
1: good segment.
3: What a cool uh, achievement and in, in finally doing that and uh, you know back, nowadays it's, you know, it's not totally different but it is different you know you, you see pictures and there's just a line of people yeah. you know, all the way up and you know it's almost dangerous you're just waiting in line to, to get your chance yeah. to take it yeah it's and, and that doesn't take away the danger aspect of it so people you know, people are like i got to the top of everest but there was like an hour wait so i had to leave you know it's just like what a, what a right
1: it's awful... like it's like the the majesty of that achievement has basically become commercialized
0: yeah. Right. yeah i don't know if you guys have seen the movie everest it's maybe about 10 years old now um but there's a moment in there where the guy he's waiting in line and then it, it ends up affecting his climbing and he ends up almost falling in a crevasse and he's all you know, pissed off about almost falling and dying and he's like, Man, it's like I'm waiting in a freaking line in Walmart. But it is it really <laughs> is. Disney World. Yeah. Disney World or yeah, like they really do have to wait to climb up and and all that time they're just wasting oxygen and obviously there's not an endless supply of oxygen in your pack. You only have so much. So and there's only um, so much
3: room too. If there's a weaker climber ahead of you yeah. it's taking a long time. It could kill every like destroy everybody's time behind him.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Well, well, and they can only they can only summit at a certain time of the year. Right. So like there's like this small window right. where you and you can't do it for like the rest of the year.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes there's only a week, a week of good weather up there and you, every team goes up and you're just waiting. And uh, hmm. interesting thing about the Hillary step, they they reckon when the earthquake happened there uh, was about five years ago, three or four. I think it was three or four years ago, The the big earthquake in Nepal they reckon that when that happened, it it broke off a piece of the Hillary step. So it's much shorter now. And because of all the snow built up, it's really just kind of a walk up. So it's technically a little easier to climb Everest now than, than in Hillary's day.
1: Wow. I'm still not going to do it, but that's, (laughs) that doesn't doesn't convince you. I'm not totally, not totally.
3: (laughs) My wife won't let me do it. I've got too many, too many uh, things, too many responsibilities back home here. So
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to do it, but same thing. <laughs> Plus, I don't have seventy grand to, to spend. Yeah,
3: exactly. i spend seventy grand on maybe like a pool and like a right. Nice-
1: <laughs> yeah, you you could spend that promoting virtuous men and brothers' creed. You oh, know there why? You. There you go. <laughs> right. Yeah.
2: Well, this has been this has been awesome. I think a collaboration kind of with 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 you guys and and. What you do and your message is just very in sync with what Jared and I do with the you know Brothers Creed podcast and just building a personal virtuous creed that, you know, learning from these people in history that have done such great things. Um, you know, there's there's no better teacher, I think, than history and then the examples of the people that have come before us. And so I think this has been great. Yeah, I think absolutely. We've got a, yeah, a great variety
3: of of a different experience of a great variety of different types of duos and partnerships, and there are lots of lessons and and attributes that have come out as well.
1: It's just, and it's just such a great reminder, too. I feel like in this day and age, because there's so much emphasis on the in, on individual achievement, like what do you do? Like there's the whole cult of self love and everything out there. Like it seems like the entire culture is devoted to. This notion of the self. So to be reminded that you can't do it alone, you know, like that. It's such a relevant message and one that we all need to hear.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and the message that we can learn from the past. No one's saying these these men and women of the past were perfect, but what can you learn and apply to today? I think is a, a key message, and uh, it kind of makes me think of of the ending of uh our episode two for season two of our our podcast we we really dive into that and uh one of the guys that we we interview really went into that because it, it seems like today we just kind of venerate the past and all oh, these people are they didn't know what they were doing and, and we're so much wiser today but i think we can learn quite a bit if we really study the past and because it it, it it is applicable there's there's nothing new under the sun at the end of the day
3: <laughs> yeah lots of lessons very that repeat true. themselves exactly yeah
1: very true.
3: Well, guys, it was great doing this with you. Uh, and Absolutely. To the listeners out there, you know, definitely check out A Virtuous Man podcast, uh, check out A Brother's Creed podcast, both excellent podcasts. Uh, these guys just came out with their second season. Um, and so I think, you know, they're probably on their, you know, second or third episode at this point, but it's it's a great listening. Go back to listen to season one too, because it's excellent stuff. So
0: yeah, thank you guys. Thanks for having thank us, you. and and let's let's do more of these because I really enjoy them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's keep in touch. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, uh, where can the so listeners? You can find the Brothers Creed podcast at a Brothers Creed um, on Instagram and all, all social medias. What about you guys? What's your Instagram handle?
0: So it's uh, virtuous underscore man, um, and it, just look for a a black logo with a virtuous man on it. And for the podcast, it's Virtuous Man Podcast. And we're on Apple, Spotify, all the all the podcast sources. And our, our logo on our podcast has a, little headphones with Virtuous yes. Man. So yes. looks cool. Yeah. All,
2: right. all
3: right. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. You bet. Lot, Take guys. care.
0: This episode of Virtuous Man was written and recorded by Jamie Adams and Scott Einig, featuring Ethan and Jared Thomas of A Brother's Creed. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and leave a review in the comments section.
1: Thanks for joining us for Season 2. Season 3 will be coming later this year, where we'll share another round of men and virtues to inspire you to continue to live out the virtuous life.